right. Welcome back to Pot on You Loons, part two of episode 14. We are not a political podcast, but at times politics will blend into sports. And soccer around the world has countless examples where sport and politics are intertwined. In episode 11, when we first interviewed Nate, he spoke of Antifa and the Iron Front in relation to the MLS and specifically his Portland Timbers. Of course, within two weeks, Trump labeled Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. We have Nate here. And Nate, my my question for you is, what was the response like to be labeled by Trump as a domestic terrorist organization? So I sent a a scarf to my sister today in the mail and I wrote from your Antifa brother on the packaging. And I thought I thought for a minute as I did it, I was like, I wonder if Homeland Security or the NSA are going to intercept this package and look through it and they're gonna find a scarf that says against racism, against fascism in black and white, because it's a black and white issue. You know, I think that if anything uh, I would hope that this this episode would serve as an education for those that might listen, that might be less informed about what being Antifa is, um, because I, I think that there's that's widely misconstrued. The president has seized on concepts that are not actually Antifa and is using those to further his own political agenda, which is what Antifa are fighting against. So... Was it widely misconstrued or was it just Trump that didn't understand? And I'm asking you this because as soon as he said that, it seemed like it turned into a giant joke. And I haven't seen him say anything about that ever since. I mean, I think that's the funny part is that he he construes this as though Antifa are this well-organized organization and the of course the twitterverse then explodes with everybody is captain and general and president of antifa and all of that and that's hilarious because that i mean the thing is it's completely organic to preview coming attractions right you are timbers army if you want to be timbers army you are antifa if you want to be antifa it's as simple as that so justin and i are we are we antifa are you fascists yeah, I mean, like, like no, I agree no. with the ideology, yeah. right? Do you, are you against fascism? If you, you could not be a fascist, but are you against fascism? I, I am against fascism, yeah. And you're Antifa. You're Is there, like, a swearing-in ceremony? Can you, like, bless us or, you know, like, ordain us as Antifa? <laughs> <laughs> you're splashed on you at a swearing-in, <laughs> and you're Antifa. I thought it was concrete milkshakes, right? Wasn't that like the scandal or whatever years ago? Oh, boy. (laughs) So I'm interested then. Nate, how long did you have to serve as a gigolo before you were a full- (laughs) Not a gigolo. Not a gigolo, Sam. Juggalo. (laughs) Juggalo. (laughs) Nate, are you a gigolo? Oh, man. I'm not not a gigolo. (laughs) Or a juggalo? <laughs> I am not aware of any juggalo status. Okay. Huh. As we're learning what Antifa is and uh what the 
juggalos or gigolos have to do with Antifa. If it's anti-fascist, Nate, can you first just describe to us what is fascism to you? How would you define fascism if you were asked? Yeah, so the, I mean, historically, the concept of fascism dates back to uh, World War II Italy and pre-World War II Italy. So Mussolini kind of adopted this ideology as a way of, as a goal for his country. So the general principles upon which fascism is founded, um, it's hyper-nationalism. So country first, so Trump's America first ideology that actually is a callback to World War II era American political ideologies that were <clears throat> that were wanting to keep America out of the war. Um, militarism. And he's, he's also he has also said that he is a nationalist. Like he straight up said it. Right. And I mean, to, to clarify, nationalism is putting your own country on a elite pedestal saying because we are this country, you are an elite. So you can be, you can have, has nothing to do with, you know, economic standings or military standings or anything like that, right? Your belief that your country is the best country on the world above other countries, right, is the general concept of nationalism. And we'll, you know, we'll get into where that, where that plays out in, in some of the articles that we read. Um, so militarism, glorification of violence, a glorification of youth, a glorification of masculinity, a sort of leader cult where uh, the leader is worshipped, this sort of lost golden age syndrome where you hearken back to previous periods um, that you want to recreate. Um, and then this... Or grief, make great again. Right. And then a being sort of self-defined by opposition. So you find enemies of the people to oppose in order to save the country from these bad things. So those are those are some of the key traits of fascism, uh, as well as one that I forgot to put on there uh, or forgot to mention, um, which is basically a war against the media. So media are seen at any, any organization that's looking to provide transparency or to provide uh, truth is ostracized uh, and marginalized. Sounds a lot like calling out the media as being fake news and firing every inspector general that is against you. Exactly. So, you know, that that ideology, it's a, it may feel like a large bit to chew off, right? But, you know, those are tenets of fascism. So fascism uh, would be the embracement of those ideologies. Antifa which is short for anti-fascism, would just be the opposition to those principles and saying that the world is better off when we have something that's other than those things. And in particular, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, bigotry, slander, all of those things that are that come along with fascism, Antifa opposes and favors society of tolerance. So Nate, after... Our initial episode with you and after, you know, in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests, Donald Trump referring to Antifa, I, you know, just did a little Internet research on Antifa. And I was surprised to see that one of the first things that popped up was actually from the Timbers Army. 
uh, which you are so familiar with. And I just want to read you, which I'm, I'm sure you've read this before, but I want to just read our audience the quote published by the Timbers Army. In truth, Antifa is not an organization. It is not a political party. Antifa is short for anti-fascist. That's it. If you're against hatred, oppression, fascism, then you're Antifa. Simple as that. We do not support violence or violent groups. We support the image as it is meant to be, a symbol of our firm stance combating hate in soccer, in our communities, and in our world. So, Nate, my, my question for you then on this is, why is Antifa incorrectly being labeled as an organization? Are there organizations that consider themselves Antifa that are maybe being confused with Antifa as a whole? What would you say to that? I mean, I think in our current political culture where the creation of opposition and the, the marginalization of, of so many groups is so, so prevalent, a group of people that are loosely designed, that are loosely defined that are fighting against that are kind of an easy target. So when you have a president who defines himself as a, you know, self-defines as a nationalist and uh, exhibits other characteristics uh, of traits of fascism, that when you have a group that is going to oppose that and makes themselves known by counter-protesting white nationalist protests, for example, you know, being, being out in the community and being supportive of a community that's uh, welcoming and embracing, that that's, it makes for an easy target to say, oh, those are the bad guys. In reality, if you look at the news and the fact that, you know, many of the, many of the looters in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests uh, and uprising were from you know, out of the area and were more of opportunists. There are well-known anarchists, anarchist groups in Portland that will attach themselves onto protests, peaceful protests for the explicit purpose of just causing chaos at the end. So some of that gets misconstrued there. Um, but I think it's more of a, you know, wanting to continue this agenda of, division the president has currently has been engaging in for almost four years of his term plus his couple years in running. And, and Nate, like for me personally, my only, you know, understanding and knowledge of Antifa stems from two, two things, right? So the Proud Boys stuff in Portland, like that's the first thing that I ever saw where Antifa came into play, right? And that was, that was counter-protesting a known, right? Like, I mean, are they white supremacists? Would Proud Boys be under that umbrella? Oh, yeah. Or are they just, yeah. So, like, that was the first thing I saw. And then the other one is Charlottesville, right? So they were, people from Antifa were at Charlottesville, you know, on the other side of, you know, Richard Richard Spencer and that, like, the guys with the tiki torches, you know, and eventually the the member of that group running over a lady with his car, right? Like, that was Antifa. Those are the two instances I've heard Antifa, and both times it was it was counter protesting, you know, these fascist groups, 
right? These big, these problematic groups in our country. And I, so I think that the, the history is that talking about the, you know, we're going to talk about the Iron Front, the imagery from the Iron Front, which was a 1930s German group that opposed fascism in Germany and opposed the Nazi rise within Germany, right? So they were organized and they were wanting to make sure that Nazism and fascism and totalitarianism did not rise and gain too much power in Germany and, and were a resistance movement, right? And so, you know, there's been the resistance hashtag, right? All of the resistance to all of the political events in this country over the last number of years, right? Over the, the current presidency, you know, and so I think that certainly it's come more into the mainstream, right? And I'm not certainly an expert on on the origins of Antifa in Portland, but I do know that Portland has a long, you know, Oregon itself has a long history of white supremacy. The, you know, the state was, you know, even for a quote, Northern state was, um, had a lot of racism in its constitution and its foundings. So back to its creation, you know, there has been a lot of divisions and similar to, you know, decisions made to remove the Rondo neighborhood here for I-94. There was a town, black community in, in Portland called Banport um, that was in the northern part of town uh, that flooded and then was never rebuilt. And then you got gentrification in Portland right and left, right? So there's there's plenty of examples of uh, systemic racism in Portland. And I think that that, that movement, especially against white supremacy in Portland has been strong and that that has flowed into the soccer community because the soccer community in Portland is a welcoming, tolerant place where racism, fascism, hatred are not tolerated. So let's move things to the Iron Front because last summer that was technically what was getting the attention in the MLS, where the Iron Front logo, which Nate is uh, wearing on our video chat right now, of the three arrows, the MLS for a period last summer said that that symbol was banned within its stadiums. And they were actually kicking people out for wearing that logo as they did to, to Nate when Portland was at Allianz Field. That decision was eventually reversed. I think it was a universally, the fan groups across the MLS did not approve of the MLS banning that symbolism within its stadiums. But let's now gain a better understanding about the Iron Front. So you, you had kind of already said it was founded in Germany in the 30s in opposition to the Nazis. And the logo was designed basically to cover up swastikas, just the arrows. It was, it was easy to paint them over, over swastikas. They were against fascism, but in the little bit of research I just conducted, it sounded like they're also against communism. Nate, do you know anything about their stance against communism historically? I don't know a ton about the, the history of, the Iron Front, you know, outside of their opposition to Nazism and fascism. I mean, you look at the National Socialists, right? They were 
they were anti-communists, but they were also socialists, right? So if you were opposing government takeover, government control of economy, that would make sense. Yeah. I was a little bit surprised to see the communists included in on it just because from the Minnesota United perspective, it's not a majority of the people at Allianz Field, but you do see very vocal people at Allianz Field waving symbols of, we'll say socialism. I don't necessarily know that they're full-fledged communists or that they would consider themselves full-fledged communists, but you will see that symbolism at Allianz Field. Again, I think it's a it's safe to say it, that's a minority of supporters, but also that same section of supporters was very against the banning of the Iron Front symbol. And so for me, in just a little bit of research I did to see that the Iron Front historically took a stance against communism as well, that jumped out at me that jumped out at me a little bit. But again, let's read what the Timbers Army has said about the Iron Front. So it, it looked like they published this document last summer around the same time that the MLS banned the Iron Front logo from its stadium. The Iron Front logo has stood as a symbol of the fight against persecution and fascism since World War II. Originally designed to symbolize the resistance against Nazi rise by effectively covering swastikas, it now stands primarily for the fight against all oppression. So that that seems to be, you know, that last line right there, standing for the fight against all oppression, that seems to be the focal point of the Iron Front in the United States today. Would, would you agree? For sure. I think that, as I said before, the the fact that you have the Timbers Army and the, call it the sister organization, the Rose City Riveters that support the Thorns that are so active in the community, helping to support organizations that are and communities uh, that are in need and then have been, you know, so welcoming to LGBTQ community, other uh, maligned communities that it's the statement of all are welcome here, right, is is easily entwined with the iron front of being against oppression, right? And so I would say that a, a pillar of, of that community is anti-fascism by way of acceptance of anyone who wants to be a part of it. And the iron front, the flying of the iron front logo came about as a more recent manifestation of our current political climate. And that, you know, talking about the intersection of politics and sports, right? That when you have communities that are not often given a voice that then have a voice, they're going to use it and they're going to use it in that way. Thanks, Nate. And we'll talk more about what political affiliations MLS clubs may or may not hold in our closing discussion of this episode. But I liked what you said about how, and you are specifically referring to the Timbers and the Timbers Army about how it is an inclusive environment. It is, it doesn't matter your background. 
it, it doesn't matter who you are, you're welcome at those games. You're welcome in those sections. You're welcome into those supporters groups. And that is what I've noticed from the teams that I follow. It's not something I've noticed. While I haven't seen any discrimination from the Green Bay Packers or the Wisconsin Badgers or the Milwaukee Brewers, I also haven't seen what I see when I go to a Minnesota United game where you see large banners saying, all are welcome, where you see large banners that are promoting inclusivity and are, you know, firmly placing themselves against any form of exclusivity or any form of oppression. Soccer games in the United States, it seems like the teams have rallied behind the idea that all are welcome there. Thank you for explaining all of that. It's definitely what I've seen in Minnesota, maybe at a smaller scale, since the Minnesota United are not as nearly as established as the Portland Timbers are. But thank you for that. And I don't, I don't mean to say that or imply that the Timbers are in any way exclusive in doing this. I think that that's, you know, I, I think that that's the point of, of where we're trying to go is that this is not unique. The Timbers Army are not unique to soccer um, and to soccer fandom. Yeah, I think in the size you might be, though. Maybe in the United States, but not in the world. Yeah, in the United States, yeah. But I guess that's a nice transition to, you know, we're, we're all a bunch of teachers here. And when we invited Nate back on for his second appearance on our show, his second cap, if you will, he gave us homework. Uh, he, <laughs> he gave us some required reading. So we, Justin and I read a book Nate recommended to us called How Soccer Explains the World, An Unlikely Theory of Globalization by Franklin Foer. Prior to this episode, Justin and I read two chapters that Nate assigned to us. Nate refreshed himself on two chapters about basically how in many parts of the world, your support of a soccer club, it means more than simply wanting them to win. And specifically, we read two chapters, one on Barcelona in La Liga in Spain, and we read another chapter on Red Star Belgrade in Serbia and what it means to support those clubs. So we'll talk a little bit about what we read there. And I will point out this book was written, I think, early 2000s. It has been updated. It's still a relevant book. But, you know, just keep that in mind as we're talking is that the book is a little bit dated in that sense. The, the content is all still very relevant. So we'll, we'll talk about what supporting those clubs means to their fans politically. And then we'll tie it into... How does that relate to us in the United States and specifically in the MLS? Nate and Justin, in the chapter, let's start with Barcelona, because I, I think it's just a little bit more familiar to our audience than Red Star Belgrade. I, I think, let's be honest, it's significantly more familiar to our audience than Red Star Belgrade. Supporting Barcelona, it's not only liking that team, it's not only wanting that team to win, but it's also an expression of Catalan pride. 
because Barcelona is located in the region of Catalonia, which has a very unique culture within the country of Spain. It has its own language, Catalan. I remember visiting Barcelona and seeing Harry Potter for sale written in Catalan language and not in Spanish. You know, Catalan culture, Catalan language. But politics are also such a big thing as, of course, if you're following the news, every few years it makes it to the United States that there is a Catalan succession movement going on. Now, guys, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but does does anyone want to kind of talk about, elaborate into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the the history of the last 175 years of, of Spain and Madrid and Barcelona in particular, right, are, are fairly parallel. And the key parts, the key takeaways of the chapter, right, are that you know, Franco, when he was dictator, used Madrid to be his club and made them his club. And so they received government money. They recruited the best players that they could find, right? They were basically his plaything, right? His um, obsession. And so Catalonia is the, is the resistance to the fascist regime of Franco. Barcelona became the opposition to that, right? And so rooting wasn't just that we're rooting for Barcelona to do well, right? We're rooting, we're rooting for Barcelona to do well because if they do well and they do well enough, then they're going to be better than Madrid. And this is a safe way for us to, you know, root against fascism and root for the fascists to lose, right? Without actually losing our lives, right? So it's, you have this microcosm of, of politics, which is slightly less deadly than going out and doing the real thing. Right. That that was their outlet, right? Other forms of political expression, other forms to express their Catalan heritage and pride and culture, those were illegal. But Franco, and it's not entirely clear, at least not in that chapter, but Franco allowed their expression to take place within Camp Nou. That was how they were themselves. That was how they got those feelings out, that that pride, that emotion. That was how they got that out. That was where they could say whatever they wanted about the Franco regime. And whether it was because of safety in numbers or whether it was because whether it was because they weren't going to be caught, they were safe doing so. I think that safety in numbers is a really interesting point that you have that sort of anonymity being a part of a massive crowd. If, you, if you're a part of 100,000 people, it's a lot harder for somebody to say, hey, you're the one that's doing this. We're going to arrest you. Realistically, they're not going to go arrest 100,000 people that are chanting down with Franco, right? So they can do that. And there's that degree of safety. And, and it is that outlet of then being able to say, hey, we're, we oppose this. And that, you know, the, that opposition would have been broadcast on television in its early stages, right? Or broadcast over the radio or talked about in the newspapers, right? That would have been public knowledge. And so it's it's not only the fact that you have that protection through that anonymity, but the fact that you have then that outlet of being able to say, you know, and for people throughout the region to know Barcelona is the opposition club to Franco. So if they're doing well then, you know, that's, that means something, right? 
you, you know, in Athletic Bilbao, we're not that that club was not mentioned in here. Real Sociedad was not mentioned in here. Both clubs from the Basque region, who also would have gone through a similar struggle to those in Catalonia under the Franco regime, those were not mentioned in this book. It makes me very interested to hear more about their history, kind of given their own unique struggle with uh, celebrating their cultural identity against the Spanish state. It also makes me more interested in learning more about Barcelona's other club, Espanol, who I've always understood. I don't know. I don't follow La Liga, so I don't know too much about it, but I've always understood that Espanol is more of the Spanish club in Catalonia and Barcelona was more the Catalan club within Catalonia. It makes me so interested to hear more about these clubs and how choosing your club, it's basically, it's picking your side. It's which side are you on? What do you stand for? Which carries so many more implications than me wearing a loon shirt right now. I think that was my big takeaway. You know, this really, this really made me think just about all the sports teams I follow and how it's so much deeper than sports, right? Like I had no idea about this big conflict. You know, I knew that there was a rivalry between Barcelona and Real Madrid, but I didn't know that, you know, this is a big part of it. And this is why people so much more for Barca, right? Like that's when I think about people I know that are fans of these teams, I don't know very many Real Madrid fans, but I know a lot of Barca fans. And, you know, I could see, you know, kind of, like, even though they're not the underdog, you get, you kind of get that feel with them, right? That between those two powers, you know, like, we'd rather them be successful than Chelsea. But it, but it just, not Chelsea. We'd, rather, we'd rather them be <laughs> successful than Real Madrid. Uh, but but it, just, it just makes me think about sports in general. Like, before we got on the air, we were talking, you know, about, like, the Washington Redskins. You know, the ownership of them, you know, there's a huge history of racism with them. And now, hopefully, they'll change their name. But I know personally... I dislike that team and will never cheer for them because of their name, right? Because of what they stand for. We're from Minnesota and, you know, the Minnesota Twins, you know, what came to light in the last couple of weeks is that their owner, Calvin Griffith, brought them from Washington, D.C. to Minnesota because there's less black people here, right? Like the reason why this team is here, that's what the foundation of creating of the Minnesota Twins was was to create a team in a white city, right? Like, I think we think so much about sports as just being the, you know, surface level. I like this sport. I like, I'm from this town. But, you know, this reading this book really brought to, to the forefront for me that it's so much more than the sport. And it made me appreciate soccer more because of it. We carried some background knowledge going into the chapter on Barcelona, but... When it came to the next chapter that Professor Nate assigned to us on Red Star Belgrade in Serbia, I'm not going to lie, I had to refresh myself. I I was a history major in college, a history education major in college, but I actually spent very little, I've spent very little of my career actually teaching history. I was only a history teacher for two years and I really had to refresh myself on this one. Red Star Belgrade, we read in this book, 
is actually an expression of Serbian nationalism, you know, dating back to the decades that Serbia was part of Yugoslavia. So much of this was just, you know, James was on our last episode talking about how he watches American news and he's like, whoa, are you guys on another planet? Like what's going on in the United States? Well, when I was reading about Red Star Belgrade, that was, I I was having some reactions. So first of all, they're, call them what you want, firms, hooligan gangs, whatever you want to call them. They have office space at the team headquarters and their leaders receive a stipend from the team, or at least did at the time that this book was published in the early 2000s. That's crazy to me. Let's go more into the political stance on Serbian nationalism. So their local rivals, Partisan, I actually studied this a little bit in college. So the Yugoslav Partisans were the name of the resistance group led by Tito that liberated Yugoslavia from the Nazis in World War II. And that is incredibly significant in Cold War history because while Yugoslavia was in Eastern Europe, while Yugoslavia was technically a communist country, Yugoslavia was not a Soviet satellite state for that reason. They weren't part of the Warsaw Pact. They had a certain level of autonomy from the Soviet Union that other Eastern European countries did not have. In fact, Tito was directly in straight-up defiance with Stalin. And Tito actually established a formal relationship with the United States where the United States actually provided Yugoslavia aid as part of the Marshall Plan. So Yugoslavia, in in terms of communist Eastern Europe in the Cold War era, was completely different from the rest of Eastern Europe. But, But they still were this country made up of, you know, many different smaller countries that didn't necessarily get along. So their local rivals, the local rivals of Red Star Belgrade, Partisan, that was kind of the team of the Yugoslavia army, right? The Yugoslavia army, they backed Partisan, where Red Star Belgrade was, was more backed by the local police and the local Serbian nationalists. So it, it's, it's just completely crazy to me how it's, draw a line in the sand, which side are you on? And coming from a Minnesota United, Minneapolis city mindset, like that doesn't exist here. I mean, I think that the the better comparison would be like Yankees Mets, right? Or Dodgers Angels, right? That you've got to, I mean, A, having groups along the same side. You know, what if it was the Nationals and Orioles, right? And the Orioles are the establishment of the North pre-Civil War, right? Baseball isn't even around, but like pre-Civil War and the Nationals are the, the embodiment of the South, right? So on a scale that we like, right, having, it's sort of this, like, how do, you, how do you even begin to understand, contextualize 
what it's like to have soccer allegiances when soccer is a part of civil war, right? Or national strife. And how do you begin to understand those those relationships? Um, I think what you know what strikes me is the the kind of cavalierness with which they they talk about the things that they do and and the you know the way that that exposes the level of nationalism. You know, I think that there's certainly a, a level of of pride which you know, pride in your team and pride in your country, uh, which is understandable. And then there's the level of, of violence and nationalism and superiority that we see. And the one of the intriguing things that I found was, you know, talking about or reading about how, you know, those those groups had looked at what was happening in Western Europe in the 80s and basically patterned themselves after Hooligan culture in the 80s in England and elsewhere, right? And so they're nationalists, and yet they've globalized their hooligan culture, right? They've taken from other countries to perpetrate, you know, to to carry out these hooligan behaviors, and and yet they're not just taking things out on people from other countries; they're taking things out on their in the in the case of partisan and Belgrade, their fellow municipal citizens. Now we can't uh, close off our conversation of Red Star Belgrade without mentioning their affiliation with Arkan, who was an infamous Serbian warlord, essentially, who was a Red Star Belgrade fan and basically found a way to organize their various hooligan firms into essentially, a, I shouldn't say essentially, he organized their hooligan firms into a paramilitary group that took part in expelling non-Serbs around Serbia within the Yugoslavia war, massacring countless people. And this all stemmed from supporters groups for Red Star Belgrade. Like that is crazy to me that when when I when I think about you know, and on the global scale, MLS supporters groups may not be that big of a deal, but even on the global scale, I think of supporters groups and I think of, you know, flares, I think of waving flags, I think of chants, I think of potential bar fights, but I don't think of forming into a paramilitary group and, you know, participating in ethnic cleansing. Yeah, that part was crazy to me to, to see something start as a just a supporters group and kind of grow into becoming a very dangerous, very terrible thing. Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah. And that obviously that war was in the 90s and this book was written in the early 2000s and if there are Red Star Belgrade supporters listening to this podcast, I, I've done enough research to know that that's, that's not necessarily the case right now. But I just find it so crazy when, when we've talked about how choosing your team is like drawing that line and which side are you on. Wow. Because support of a team here in the United States, it's like, 
it's maybe about region. It's often about regional identity. All the teams I like in the United States are either from Wisconsin or Minnesota, nowhere else. Those are the two places I've lived. Those are the teams I like. I know a lot of people, though, that choose teams due to their favorite athlete, especially NBA fans. I know a lot of NBA fans that cheer for whichever team LeBron is on or, you know, like the Warriors because of Steph Curry. But maybe, maybe we are noticing something different in American soccer compared to other American sports. What would you guys say to that? I mean, I think that it's... You know, interesting talking about that topic of more than just choosing your team, but choosing what side you're on. And I think that that's where the Antifa concept comes in, right? Is that we're sort of at this turning point in our country where we're choosing sides, right? And you can't you can't be neutral. You can't be on the fence because there's there's a lot that's at stake. And what is the future? Where are we where are we headed, right? And so when you have kind of the, to use a, the analogy of the pressure cooker, right? So you have so many different regions and cultures and people and ethnicities living within the United States. And then you have a president who comes in and just kind of takes the lid off having shaken the whole thing up and espouses the level of xenophobia that he has right and and allows for you know alt-right groups to feel comfortable and empowered right then it does become a which side are you on right and so then you know i I applaud any fan group right that is willing to say no this is the side that we're taking right and and it's in some ways too bad that other sports aren't willing to take that, right? And that I think if if there's, you know, a takeaway from how soccer explains the world, right, which has, you know, numerous other examples of how soccer clubs around the world represent various political, social, economic aspects of their country, right? So the book shows you can't separate sports and politics, right? It's not stick to sports, it's sports is life, sports is culture, and culture is politics. I think that we just have done a really, and, and I think that the capitalist part of sports in America and the marketing part of sports in America has sold a product that is supposedly devoid of politics, when in reality it's not. And we're quickly coming to, to grasp that fact, that there is no separation between sports and and culture and politics. Yeah, it's it's amazing, you know, to kind of echo what you're saying, Nate, to think about all the changes that have happened in the world of sports in the last few months. I mean, I, I think about NASCAR as a, as a prime example of being the sport that, you know, kind of is, when I think of sports and I think of racism, like I, I, I hate, I hate to say it to a lot of NASCAR fans out there, but like the racist South loves NASCAR, you know, that's their sport. And to have that them decide to come out against the Confederate flag was that was huge, right? Like for 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 something that has, you know, like I went to races when I was a kid. My dad's a huge fan. And you could see there are more Confederate flags than American flags, it seems sometimes, right? Like, 
you know, to have them take a stand and say that this is wrong, you know, that's huge, right? When in the past, it's always been like, well, that's, it's, you know, we can't talk about that. Like you said, right? Like it's sports, sports are not, that's what they are. They're the escape. There is the escape from politics for us when that shouldn't necessarily be the case, right? Like let these, let these teams use this platform, you know, use this platform to make positive change, hopefully positive change. Yeah. And our country right now, you have someone that is so deranged leading the country and it almost seems irresponsible to not, I I shouldn't say it almost seems irresponsible. It is irresponsible. If you have a platform of any, of any extent, if you have influence of any extent, like you got to speak out against this guy. This guy is a lunatic and he's bringing us all down with him. Like that shouldn't be politics. That should be right and wrong. You know, I'm not giving a ringing endorsement of Biden or the Democratic platform or or anything like that. But but what I am saying is Trump and the things he stands for, the things that have come out of his mouth. This isn't what CNN has said he's done. This isn't what this isn't what MSNBC has said he's done. This isn't what anyone has said he has done. This is, these are the things coming out of his mouth. These are the things that he tweets. These are wrong and you gotta speak out against it you you know i think nate said it perfectly it's what side are you on are you okay with what he's done are you okay with what he's doing are you okay with the way the country is going or do you think we can be better than this because i personally think we can be better than this and i think that's where the to to kind of circle back to where we started with the timbers army and the iron front right the the victory was getting MLS to see, hey, we can't, like, this isn't a matter of excluding political text or political speech, right? This is a matter of playing both sides to something that you don't want to play both sides to, right? Whereas the president is willing to play both sides. And when you have whatever ultimately is the the bottom line, whether it's money or whether it's your fan support or whether it's the pressure that they can put on you, Right. It's how do you get that job done? And it's amazing that, you know, NASCAR is willing to come out with very little pressure. Right. And say that. And where are these other big leagues? I mean, I think that the the NBA has done some to support players in the last couple of years um, with their political speech. I think the NFL is doing way too little, way too late. I think that baseball is kind of lost. But, you know, where are. Where are these leagues supporting their players? Because when you have players with things to say and you don't amplify their voices, you know, some of it was the fact that the return of the EPL was unfortunately perfectly timed with recent events here and around the world, right? But everything that anybody would do here almost looks like they're following a foreign league, right? So the EPL was, for lack of a better way to put it, perfectly positioned and I'm not saying that they did it for any sort of benefit, right? But they they got to be the first ones to do it. And I think they did it perfectly. And they did it because you've had players like Raheem Sterling who have been speaking out for the last couple of years. And the league as a whole is starting to realize, hey, we should support these players. And I think that the, you know, personally that the, the major sports in the United States need to do a better job of that. 
right? Colin Kaepernick has been standing by himself for far too long, regardless of his stance, you know, how good he is on the field, right? He was still an NFLer. He was still a starting quarterback. And he was still maligned for the fact that he was willing to make political speech because it wasn't popular, right? Which is the purpose of protest. So, you know, the, the it's up to the, the leagues now to really state which side they're going to take. I guess what makes it tough, though, unfortunately, though, these leagues are owned by the billionaire class in our in our country. And, you know, who does the billionaire class support? Right. And that's part of the problem. But what what we can do as a society is put pressure on them to even if they don't personally feel this way, they can at least have the decency to support the players that are playing in their leagues who are feeling this. Even if they don't care, at least they can support their their players. So I'm I'm actually gonna take this from we'll, we'll plug Jer our friend of the show Jeremy. He's on the My Franchise Fantasy Football podcast, and I was listening to one of their episodes the other day, and they were talking about the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, and what Jeremy said. I I think really made a lot of sense to me is that. You know, Justin talked about the billionaire class that these NFL owners represent. Two or three years ago, I it, it all blurs together, but two or three years ago when the league more or less blackballed Colin Kaepernick and uh, the kneeling thing was in the forefront of the media, the league was losing money. The league's ratings were down because of the protest where it has flip-flopped so quickly this summer it has flip-flopped so quickly where it would be so detrimental for the league to maintain that stance right now. It would be so detrimental to those owners' pockets if they were not to reverse the stance that they once had. You know, unfortunately, as a, as a skeptic, I don't think that that necessarily means that they learned anything. I think that that just... I, I don't think that that necessarily means any real change had occurred. I just think that that means that they're doing what is in their best interest. I don't know. Am I being too doom and gloom here? <laughs> but, but you know what, that's, that's better than, that's better than them avoiding it. Right. Right. Even, even if it's not voluntary, it, it's still a move in the right direction. I believe. I do still think taking it back to soccer Going to forward Madison games, going to Minnesota United games, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I've been checking out podcasts from teams all over the league, including other USL teams, not just MLS teams. But I've, I've tried to really examine what American soccer supporter culture is like as a whole. And it just seems like that while supporting a soccer team in the United States isn't necessarily the same as being on Barca or Real Madrid or Red Star Belgrade or Partizan or Celtic or Rangers, which we, we didn't even get into. It, it doesn't seem like it's at that level, but it, it seems like soccer supporter culture in the United States, one thing that it has in common team to team is the idea of in inclusivity. And I, I am proud of that political statement that so many supporters, cultures around the, around the country have made. I hope that that can continue to be an example 
of this country that desperately needs this right now. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was very interesting reading this book and talking about this book with you guys. And I hope we can explore this book further. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for thanks for suggesting it, Nate. It was a good read. Yeah. Glad you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Nate, it's uh, it's fun having you on. It's it's fun getting your perspective on these things. Politics and soccer, I, I think you know just so much more about it than we do. Supporters culture and soccer, I think you know so much more about it than we do. And we do this every few weeks. You're welcome back anytime, man. Yeah, hopefully we can hopefully we can have a show where we are smack talking each other about an impending Timbers United game. Hopefully that's what we get to do eventually. I, I will for sure say I will definitely try to arrange that the next time Minnesota United plays the Timbers. Of course, Minnesota United already played the Timbers, Justin. Well, the next time, right? They'll yeah, play again. They'll play again. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. So, um, so when are we coming back, Sam? When's the next show? Yeah, so we take on Sporting Kansas City Sunday, July 12th at 7 p.m. And... Justin and I will record a reaction episode to that first game back shortly after, probably on that Monday, and I'll release the recording as quickly as possible. Then we have Real Salt Lake on Friday, July 17th at 9.30, followed by Colorado Rapids Wednesday, July 22nd at 9.30 as well. We will record an episode of Pot on Loons recapping both of those games on July 23rd and release that episode as soon as possible as well. So from all of us here, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our conversation. If you want to join the conversation, pick up a copy of the book. It was just like $10 for me on Amazon. Communicate with us. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. I think Justin runs the Instagram account. So I don't really <laughs> look there. at that one. It's there. It exists. You can communicate with us easily. We also, you know, just shameless plug while we're here, a five-star review on iTunes does a lot for us. And hitting that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using, hitting subscribe and giving us those extra downloads, those extra plays, that does a lot for us as far as promoting our brand. So thank you for, thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging in this conversation with us. And thank you, Nate, for joining on and sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Pot on you loons. Pot on you loons. Pot on Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> that was clever. That was clever. Good. That was good fellas. All right. Have a good one. Peace out.